So if you've got a Bible, I'm going to ask you to open up to three places, Proverbs 31, Proverbs 23, and Proverbs 3. We've been walking through a series studying the book of Proverbs. We've got one week left. Next Sunday, we'll finish this series, but today we're looking at another theme, the theme of family. It is a really important theme in God's Word. It is a really important theme in the book of Proverbs, and it's not a theme that we can exhaustively cover. Matter of fact, so um, I don't stick to my manuscript word for word, but I do bring up here a manuscript, and it's typically 3,200 or so words. Well, I have a, a document that's everything that's on the cutting room floor, and the document that's on the cutting room floor is over 11,000 words. So this sermon, you're welcome. This sermon could have been much, much longer. There is so much to say about about family. Uh, so what I want to do, since we're not going to be that exhaustive, is I want to resource you up. So we got some resources I'm going to put up, up here on the screen. If you want to take a picture or however you want to do this, old school, and actually write it down with your physical hand, whatever. Uh, but here are some resources that might fill in some gaps once we're done. Uh, number one, Show Them Jesus, Teaching the Gospel to Kids. Just an excellent book on training in the home and loving our children in the home uh, and, and being gospel-centered parents. Second, Practicing Affirmation by Sam Crabtree. The foreword is by John Piper. He is a, an elder up there at Bethlehem Baptist. It's an outstanding book. If you feel like affirmation's really not my fastball, I'm not good at encouraging people, I can rebuke like really good. If that's, if that's you, this book is outstanding, not just for parenting, but just for life, rich. Okay, third, Instructing a Child's Heart by Ted and Margie Tripp. Great book about giving our kids a biblical worldview through which they can view all of life. It gives helpful instruction about what does discipline look like in a way that we don't go into the ditch of behavior modification and we don't just go passive, but we go gospel-centered homes where there is loving discipline. They clarify that in a really biblical and helpful way. And then finally, A Neglected Grace, Family Worship in the Christian Home, uh, a great book, we're going to talk very briefly about family worship. If that's a mysterious category to you, this is a very, very little, thin book, helpfully written to answer the question, what is family worship? What can it look like in your home? Very simple vision for family worship in a Christian home. So, all that to say, um, family matters. It matters because God ordained it. It's God's idea. God... God put Adam and Eve together in the Garden of Eden, and then he told them, be fruitful and multiply. So marriage is God's idea, family is God's idea. And it was all very good at the very beginning, but then, if you know the story, and you read just three chapters in, everything goes sideways in Genesis chapter three. They rebelled against God, Adam and Eve, and into the world come flooding brokenness of every kind, evil and distortions and abuse of all the good things that existed in God's world. Uh, start to get broken, and marriage is one of them, and so is family, and so downstream of Genesis 3 is where we sit, so we know probably in this room, ground zero of your greatest joys is family, and tragically, ground zero of your greatest pain is probably also family, so it's a sensitive topic for us to think about I'm, um, I'm reading a book, it's, it's about the life, powerful story of the life of John Sowers, and um, 
I'm glad that the title of the book announces that it's about a story of redemption because it doesn't sound like it when you read the first chapter. Page one of chapter one, he goes dark fast. This was his reality of family. The earliest memories of my father are the few times he came to visit us during the Christmas season. About once a year, he would drive up from Austin to Little Rock for the weekend. My brother and I usually stayed with him at the Motel 6. My brother Bill and I always ended up fighting for his attention. To us, his attention was a prize to be won, to be earned. It was as if we had one weekend to catch up on an entire year of absence. One chance to have him notice us, look at us, be proud of us, and love us. One brief moment to shine for this elusive man we called Dad. Secretly, I hoped he might stay around, just maybe. If, if we pleased him enough or were good enough, he just might stay. He might stay home with us where he belonged. So I continued to live my little fantasy until it was time for his inevitable departure. I remember once grabbing his ankles, hanging on for dear life as he walked out the front door, dragging me as I pleaded with him to stay. I was fighting for his affection, literally, but it didn't work. It never worked. Each time he left, my heart would break and I would die again. There is profound brokenness in this world, in the realm of family. And that was his reality. And the strange thing is to read page one of chapter one and then to flip back and read the words, the first sentence of the foreword, which is about the man John Sowers. And the person who wrote the foreword wrote this. John Sowers is living proof that God can take fatherless boys and turn them into men of integrity and excellence, men who lead movements and love their wives. Isn't that beautiful, right? Only God can do this kind of rich, redemptive work of grace. How does he do it? So Proverbs 3, and I'm gonna read them all in, in succession, unbroken succession but I want you to hear what it sounds like when family is right. Because that's what these texts are. This is what it sounds like when family is right. Proverbs 3, beginning in verse 1. Father is speaking to his son. My son, don't forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commands, for they will bring you many days a full life and well-being. He's painting a picture of the future. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, son, know him, and he will make your paths straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Flip over to Proverbs 23, verse 22. Listen to your father who gave you life and don't despise your mother when she is old. Buy and do not sell truth, wisdom, instruction, and understanding. I love that. Verse 24, the father of a righteous son will rejoice greatly and one who fathers a wise son will delight in him. Let your father and mother have joy and let her who gave birth to you rejoice, my son, Give me your heart and let your eyes observe 
my ways. Proverbs 31, the last chapter of this book, the closing scene of the book in verse 28. And what do we hear? Her children, that is the mother's, his wife's children, her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also praises her. Many women have done noble deeds, but you surpass them all. So what do you hear? What you hear in those texts, I would submit to you, is you hear parents who fear the Lord above all. You hear, you hear parents who speak life to their children and ground their children in God's word. You see a picture of a, of a family stabilized, children stabilized by the word of God and the wisdom of God. You see children experiencing blessing in every successive station of their lives, even to the point where not only they experience joy because they're walking in the fear of the Lord, but their parents rejoice in the wisdom of their sons and daughters who walk in the fear of the Lord. And then you come all the way to the end of the book of Proverbs and you hear the sound of just gospel affirmation. The dad and the kids are rising to applaud the faithful, noble woman of Proverbs 31. What if families in the church began by the grace of God and the power of his spirit to display that to the world? What if we were able to say to a world with all of its dysfunction and brokenness without hope and we could say to the world, there's another way. God's way. There's a design that God has. There's a way back to the blueprints. There's a way back to the hope and peace and joy that is meant to be found in family. In other words, God, we could say to the culture, we could say to the world, God hasn't stopped writing new beginnings. He's still able. So before we're done, we're going to discover something. We're going to discover it's going to take the whole church family to see this happen. Everybody in every station of life, married, unmarried, all of it, it's going to take the whole church family to see this stuff happen. So three pursuits for a Christian family that display the beauty of the gospel. Number one, we put Jesus first. We put Jesus first. Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is the bedrock statement of the whole book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That is a Christian home. It has to begin there. It's Jesus comes first. His kingdom comes first. He's in charge. He sets the agenda. He's got the keys to the house. He's got the marriage. He's got the parenting. He's got the wallet. He's got the calendar. He's got it all. He's in charge. We put him first. How do we do that? Subpoint: we worship him together. We worship him together as a family. We, growing up in my, my home, um, we had an embroidered scripture verse on the wall as you came inside the house or as you walked outside the house. It wasn't very pretty or fancy, probably wasn't very expensive. That wasn't the point. The point was mom and dad wanted to serve notice to the rest of us what we're about. And it sat there every day of my childhood, that same picture sat there. Choose you this day whom you will serve. 
But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It was mom and dad serving notice. This is what we're about. We're going to play sports. We're going to have tons of fun. We're going to be at Girard Playground every night this week. And my brother and I, we played sports round the clock. But we weren't a sports family. We played sports. We had fun at sports. We weren't a sports family. We went on vacation. Tons of great vacations. We weren't a vacation family. We were a Jesus family. It was God's word that was in charge. It was his mission. It was his church that was at the center. His worship was at the center of our home. We didn't wonder what's our main thing. Our family, what's our main thing? We knew the main thing. Moses, in the Old Testament, God uses him to bring his people who were enslaved in Egypt to rescue them from Pharaoh's hand and to bring them out. And they were a sojourning people for a long time right out in the wilderness and their tents are going up when the, when the cloud stops and then they wake up and the cloud's moving. So we're, we're moving. It was a mobile people, a sojourning people. And then you come into the book of Deuteronomy and we're at the threshold of the promised land. We've been here before, but this time we're going in and Moses is going to give three speeches and then he's going to die on Mount Nebo and then the people are going into Jericho. So these speeches have gravitas. He is saying, this is what's most important. You want to stay faithful? Listen, he, essentially he's saying, Jericho is in your hearts already. Successful Jericho is all over your kids. It's just waiting to blossom when you get into Jericho. And he says, here's how you're going to be faithful when you get inside the promised land. And here's how you're going to be faithful for 100 years and 500 years and 1,000 years right here in this good land that's dripping with milk and honey. And here's what he says. He sings the Shema, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Akkad. He's singing the, the sweetest song of ancient Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. This is not some half-hearted faith. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. And notice the urgency. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be as a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. In other words, make this the non-ignorable thing in your house, the impossible to miss thing about your family. He said, you're going to be tempted to blend in with Jericho. You're going to be tempted to forget the Lord. And you keep reading from Joshua over to Judges. And just one generation later, you read in Judges chapter 2, they forgot the Lord. Why? They didn't do Deuteronomy chapter 6. They stopped talking about the faith. What did they talk about? I don't know. Jericho roads, Jericho traffic these days, Jericho vacation sites, Jericho restaurants, Jericho sports, Jericho school system. They talked about everything that they could talk about and didn't talk about the one thing they must talk about. The mighty deeds of the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt and saved us with a mighty hand and planted us in this good land that we stand on. They didn't tell the story. They, they forgot their truest identity as the people of God. They stopped worshiping him as central in their homes. Look, Moses, in this same chapter, I love this, Moses gives them a transcript for a likely future conversation with their children. He says, I'm just guessing, this is probably what's going to happen. And then he tells them, here's what you're going to say when that happens. 
Listen, when your son asks you in the future, what is the meaning of the decrees, statutes, and ordinances that the Lord our God has commanded you? In other words, why do we celebrate the feast? Why do we make pilgrimage? Why do we celebrate Passover? Why do we do all this stuff, the, the, you know, the grain offerings and, and so on and so forth? Why do we do this? What's this about? And he says, tell him we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand. Now, what's he doing? Now, dad's telling a story. He's telling the most important story, the story of the covenant. And you can see it's dazzling the eyes of the children. Before our eyes, kids, the Lord inflicted great and devastating signs and wonders on Egypt, on Pharaoh and all his household. But he brought us from there in order to lead us in and give us the land that he swore to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to follow all these statutes and to fear the Lord our God for our prosperity. This is a good thing. It's not a killjoy. It's for our prosperity always and for our preservation as it is today. Kids, righteousness will be ours if we are careful to follow every one of these commands before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. What are mom and dad doing in Deuteronomy chapter 6? They're telling the most important stories. They're dazzling their children's eyes with the gospel. They're saying, son, daughter, you should have seen walls of water on both sides of us, and we walked through on dry ground. It was crazy. And he schooled Pharaoh, the mightiest man on earth, who held us under his thumb for 400 years. And God, just like that, Pharaoh was done, and his soldiers were bobbing in the water. It was unbelievable. You should have heard Miriam's song. She pulled out the tambourine, and we sang, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. The transferring passion. Our kids won't get everything we tell them about. They won't remember all of our instructions. Look, we, we, as Christian families, I think the bane of our existence is we die the death of a thousand ambitions. We have so many things we want our kids to know, to do, to experience. We want, we want them to be socially well-adjusted. We want them to be balanced. We want them to have a healthy diet. We want them to, have, you know, we want them to know which fork is the salad fork. We, like all this stuff and everything matters. But what's the main thing that we're giving ourselves to? And do they ever ask the question, what's our passion though? What's the thing, the non-negotiable, will die on this hill thing? So how do we do this? How do we make this our passion and keep it central in our homes? Practically, plan times of family worship. What's that mean? Very basically, it means read the Bible together and pray together. It can be very short, depending on the age of the children. I'm not going to go into all that. It can be very short and very simple, but get God's word in our hearts, into our living rooms, at the kitchen table, and then get us talking in simple and honest ways back to him. But then, so planned family worship, but then also spontaneous times of thinking about and talking about God. You got mornings and evenings. You got bedtimes. You got dinner tables. You got drives to the ballpark, drives to school and back. So open the word of God. Talk about what matters. Talk about what it means to follow Jesus. Talk about what you're learning and where you're struggling, where you've failed, and how God is growing your faith. Get it out there. We worship him together too. We submit to his word. We submit to his word. You know, you don't have to have a... Um, a Bible for very long before you discover God's word corrects us. <laughs> right? It's for training and reproof 
and rebuke and correction, right? So it's, it's doing this stuff and it's gonna cross us. Why? Because foolishness is bound up in my heart. Said this last week, I wanna obey my thirst, but my thirsts are broken. And so God's word will say, hey, that's called a broken cistern. There's actually no water in it. So get away from that. That's not gonna help you. God's word corrects, it speaks truth. It says, turn around, you're going the wrong way, Matt. It disciplines us. The same is true in parenting. Proverbs is not reluctant about the place of discipline in parenting. It doesn't sing the song of our culture. Kind of just take the wheel, the hands off the wheel, and just kind of see, let them discover who they truly are, right? It, that, nowhere in here. That is, not, that is not the melody line of the book of Proverbs when it comes to discipline. Proverbs says, you refuse to discipline your children. You are setting them on a disastrous course, you let them go their own way, they're going to go the wrong way. That's why you're there. As parents, you're there for not just to be their peer or their best friend. You're there to give them biblical guidance and wisdom from God's holy word. That's strong. That's families that are strong. Listen to the correction motif. I'm not going to read them all, but this is just a few. Proverbs 29:15. A rod of correction imparts wisdom. <laughs> That's countercultural, right? My, my parents, I don't know about you, my parents imparted such wisdom on a regular basis. But it goes on. No, notice the contrast. A rod of correction imparts wisdom, but a youth left to himself is a disgrace to his mother. Proverbs 15, 5, a fool despises his father's discipline, but a person who accepts correction is sensible. Proverbs 19, 27, if you stop listening to correction, my son, you will stray from the words of knowledge. So, so back away from just the being in the weeds of a Christian home and think about God. Think about God and his relationship to his children. What does scripture say? It says the father disciplines those he loves. It's a sign of sonship that we belong, that he disciplines us. He never disciplines us in fury, or in anger, so guess what? We don't have a license to go hunting. We don't have a license to, in anger and in fury, discipline our children. Is that how God treats you? So you get down and scream in your face insults, then we don't get to do that either because we're supposed to, in whatever ways that we possibly can, show them glimpses of the way the Father treats his children. We'll do that imperfectly and we'll need to run to the Lord for grace and help but friends, we do our children no favors when we allow them to sin against one another without consequence, when we allow Junior to dishonor his mom, to be disrespectful toward his mom or to his dad or her dad, or disrespectful toward other authorities that God has installed in a world that's wired with authority, so coaches or teachers, or law enforcement, right? All of those things can be broken and can be misused, but God has not given us a world with no authority. There's authority all around. If we kick against the authority God has provided, we're only hurting ourselves, so we're teaching our children a biblical worldview. Authority is right and good and is meant to be embraced for your success in life. Listen, while we're talking about authority, it should be clear to everyone in the home 
we're all under authority. There's not a person in this house who is not under authority, the authority of God's word. He rules over us. He sets the agenda, right? This came up, uh, this issue of all of us being under authority, it came up somewhat painfully in my house some years back. Um, So sometimes, this is a confession, sometimes my sense of humor and playfulness uh, goes too far, it breaks boundaries, and it provokes and makes my kids just really mad. (laughs) Sorry, I'm not supposed to laugh, but they... Uh, they get mad, they get provoked, and I just prod them, and I'm just being playful, but I prod them, and it seems like they enjoy it, and then I keep prodding, and they're not enjoying it, but I keep doing it, right? And my wife will give me the eye, like, I think you're going too far, and I just keep doing it, and, and so then they get mad. And so it was, it was some years back when um, I was playfully prodding Ellie, and she, she said, Dad, Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And I said, who taught you that verse? Um, like, was that Miss Phyllis? Did they, are they reviewing that in Brook Hills Kids? Because, um, but she found it. it. She found Ephesians 6.4 and it was there. Look, I'm on the hook for 6.4. 6.4 is all over me. I don't get to do that. That's not okay. Dad's under authority. By, by, by the way, talk about a game changer. When it comes to discipline, a game changer is when our children see us doing the repenting, right? When, when there's been a moment of tension in the house and conflict and they go up to their room and you take some time to get your head clear and then you go upstairs and they think it's time for round two because you're gonna start talking to them about what they said to you in response, but you don't say anything about what they said. You say, I'm here because I was wrong and I was angry, and it was sinful, and, and it hurt you, and I'm really sorry, and God was not honored by that. And I'm not called to treat you that way as your dad. I'm sorry, would you please forgive me? And then can we go to Jesus together? But would you even join me as I pray for forgiveness? And then you pray and you say, Jesus, thank you that you can forgive the biggest sinner in this whole family, and it's me. And if you've ever done that before, what you, what you see, especially if you begin that in the early years, but God can work wonderful ways, is you see the gospel coin drops and they start to get their eyes open to the fact that, goodness, all of us are broken. I mean, every last one of us in this family is broken. Every last one of us needs Jesus. Every last one of us gets dirty and needs cleansing. It needs the cross. And all of us flourish as we repent. Dad first. Mom first. All of us flourish when we acknowledge he's Lord. He's in charge. We put Jesus first. Number two, we acknowledge God's goodness. We acknowledge God's goodness. And you can just fill in this next point while you're there. A Christian home is to be a place of joy. A place of joy. And in our sanest moments, isn't that what we want so deeply for our homes? We want our homes to be filled with joy, right? We, with laughter. I, I still, when um, there is not a person in my mom's life at her age 
that makes her laugh harder than her sister, my Aunt Becky. And we'll go down and we'll be at Aunt Becky's house in New Orleans and everybody, the cousins will be playing outside and doing whatever and, and you'll hear my mom and Aunt Becky dying laughing in the other room, just telling stories and laughing and sharing, sharing that. And sometimes I'll have moments where we're all together and you'll see this laughter. And I know you're supposed to be in the moment, but sometimes I leave the moment. And sometimes, sometimes I literally think to myself, this is what it's supposed to be. This is, this is how God designed it. This is the sound you're supposed to hear in a house that's governed by the gospel, governed by good news, the sound of joy, the sound of laughter. This is what it was meant to be. And I even find myself praying, may it be this way. May it be this way. May our kids grow up and be my mom's age. I'm not going to say her. <laughs> almost said it. She'd be like, that can't happen. <laughs> and be my mom's age. And their, their kids hear them in the next room just laughing enjoying God's goodness and his grace. Look, Christian parenting shouldn't feel like 18 years of obedience boot camp. (laughs) Right? I I love how regularly in Proverbs, the fruit of God's wisdom in the home is joy. Listen, don't take my word for it. Proverbs 27, 11. Be wise, my son, and bring my heart joy so that I can answer anyone who taunts me. Proverbs 23, 25. Let your father and mother have joy joy and let her who gave birth to you rejoice. So wisdom, if you will, walks through the pages of the book of Proverbs holding the hand of a friend and the friend's name is joy. Wisdom and joy walk together through the book of Proverbs. On three different occasions, the same words are repeated. We're told that a wise son brings joy to his father joy to his parents. And doesn't that make sense if the gospel is at the center of our homes? Shouldn't our our homes be marked by joy if the gospel is central? Well, what is the message of the gospel? The message of the gospel is God made us in his image to live and enjoy him and worship him and experience his blessing and his provision, but then, but we didn't want that. We wanted a throne for ourselves, and so we rebelled against him, said, no thanks, we're gonna live it our own way, and then in, into the world came evil and sin, and we had rebelled against the holy God, and judgment is gonna fall because he can't deny himself. It's, it's being true to his character that justice is coming for all who have rebelled against him. So we deserve condemnation, we deserve eternal punishment, and what does God do? He sends his son, <laughs> He sends Jesus into the world. A loving father sends Jesus to find you and bring you home to him. That is the twist ending of the Bible. He sends Jesus to die in your place, take your rap, take your blame, inhale your judgment on the cross, and then rise again from the dead. And everybody who trusts in Jesus as Lord gets his righteousness imputed, credited to us gets adopted into God's forever family. You'll never be on the outs. You're always inside. It's a once for all thing. You're in the family. Friend, what does that mean for us practically? It means if you're in Christ, there's nothing you did today, there's nothing you'll do today that will make him send you to bed without saying I love you first and giving a warm embrace to his children. He is not an ogre of a father. He is not stern and mean-spirited. Have you, so have you believed 
this gospel? Have you believed on this Jesus Christ and turned to him from whatever it is that you're hoping in and turned to him as your only hope? Look, if this is what he's offering, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we run to Christ, trust in him today? But listen, if that's our central message, good news, then shouldn't our homes be good news homes? Joyful in the goodness of God homes. The next point is this, a Christian home is to be marked by faith-filled affirmation. You talk about affirmation in the home. Proverbs closes with that standing ovation that we read. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also praises her. And what are they saying? Many women have done noble deeds, but you surpass them all. In the commendation, you read the very last verse of Proverbs, and what do you find out? The commendation of dad and the kids rings into the city streets. It's heard in the public square. It's this environment, this culture of joy and culture of affirmation. What does Paul talk about? The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, he says there should be a culture of honor, outdoing one another and showing honor. I know there's a lot of sin in the church and in your own lives and everybody's stumbling forward, but there still should be this outdoing one another and showing honor. You might say, but that's lying. I mean, if we kind of just always have the positive, it feels like spin. You ever read Hebrews 11? You ever read the, the quick summary stories of fallen heroes from the Old Testament? Here's, here's the epitaph over the life of Jacob. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and he worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff, period. Now, if you knew Jacob back in the day, you're thinking, he's getting off that easy? Like, that's the only description because I knew a lot of things about Jacob that were more than him just blessing the children and worshiping and leaning on a staff. Like I know some other moments that maybe should be included in the broader summation of the man's life. But look, Hebrews 11 views the person through the cross. It was said that Jesus would be the kind of Messiah who would come and he would see a wick with an ember that's dying and it's just barely smoldering and he wouldn't say, oh, it's pretty much dead. It said he would not be that one. He would nurse the dying ember until it came back to life. He would just patiently just blow on it, put some kindling carefully around it as the smoke goes, just gently blowing. That's the Savior. That, friends, is gospel parenting. That's gospel affirmation. It's not just, it's not much. I mean, really, there's, there's just smoke. No. Author Sam Crabtree, in that book that I was referring to a moment ago, Practicing Affirmation, he talks about uh, a moment when his daughter was entering adolescence and something changed, and he describes it this way. All of a sudden, seemingly overnight, it was as though all the knowledge of the universe had instantaneously been transferred to her brain, and she no longer needed to listen to anyone. In the same instant, all of her parents' knowledge had been sucked out of their brains, leaving them with nothing of value to say to her. And he goes on after that to describe the fact that he said, we realized as her parents that an 11-year-old who tunes out her parents is in a very, very vulnerable spot. And he said, so we wanted to regain her hearing by not just constantly bringing correction. We wanted to look for something that we could begin to affirm, a dying ember that we could just nurse. And here's what he said. 
I determined that this 11-year-old daughter whom I loved would receive more praise from me than from anyone else on the face of the globe. I became a student of her. I thought, if I have to stay up nights thinking of ways to commend her, then I will. I love that. You know what that says to parents? Don't despise the day of small beginnings. Cheer that ember like it's a roaring flame. (laughs) Cheer it because of where it's going. (laughs) Because of your faith and your prayers and your trust in the Holy Spirit. The, The ministry of encouragement, I would submit to you, the ministry of encouragement is vastly underutilized in Christian families. You know what Proverbs says? Proverbs says a gentle tongue can break a bone. What if we tried the art of gentleness and saw the power of influence that can be brought to bear through affirmation, patient affirmation. We put Jesus first, we acknowledge God's goodness. Third, our little family finds our place in God's big family. So this is a kind of twist ending, but, but to read Proverbs as an individual Christian or to read Proverbs as merely a nuclear family is to overlook the original context of Proverbs. This is in your notes. The Proverbs grow out of the soil of a community of faith. Think about it this way. So marriage and family are, in the final analysis, metaphors, right? They are momentary. Marriage is momentary. Family is momentary. And our earthly marriages and earthly families are supposed to be gesturing in the direction of an eternal marriage between Jesus and his bride, of an eternal family, the family of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered at his table and, and the feast of the Lamb. That's, it's, it's pointing toward, our imperfect families are pointing toward that lasting family. So what's that mean? It means as Christian families, we want our children to love the church. And I don't mean the faceless masses merely. I mean the local church with nameable, fallible elders and small group leaders, right? The local church. Our son Hunter went to college He's a junior now, but when he went to college for his first semester, he, uh, he got up there to Louisville and he got plugged in. He took the membership class at a great church and he got plugged in and he started serving and they, they did set up and tear down because they were borrowing a building at the time. And so he would set up chairs first thing in the morning. He would work in children's ministry and work in, in worship ministry. And a few months later, after into his first semester, my wife and I get a text, unsolicited text from Hunter on a Sunday afternoon. And it simply says in all caps with exclamation points, I love my church. And Paula and I at that moment pretty much decided it's, it's a good year. We're just calling it now. This is a good year. Why? Because we've prayed his whole life that he would love Jesus, that he would live for the cause of Jesus, that, and that the apple of Jesus' eye would be the apple of their eyes, that they would love the church. That made our year. You know, it's going to take a whole community of faith to see some of this stuff. All of us. So the local church, what are we? We worship as a community of faith. We worship as a community of faith. For 2,000 years, Christians have gathered on the Lord's Day to worship with the people they call family. Brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I baptized all three of my children right here in this water. And I love what we encourage parents to say and think about as they baptize their children. We did not gather around this water as, uh, you know, Mason party of five. 
We, we gathered around this water as brothers and sisters. That's why when they went down into the water, I said, Hunter, it is my privilege to baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, the Son. Will, my brother, down he goes, Ellie, my sister, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's a sense in which when I come to the table and my wife is standing next to me, I, in the truest sense, I'm standing next to my sister at this table. Brothers and sisters drawn together by the grace of God and the blood of Christ, it is a blood bond deeper than any family. It is our deepest family identity. Next, we're nurtured in a community of faith. So much of what I saw and learned about Jesus as a child took place in church, in the local church. It took place in the children's wing. It took place in the fellowship hall when we brought potluck dinners. It took place in student ministry when the student minister pulled me and he grabbed me by my shoulder and he said, I'm telling you, you're going to live for Jesus. It's going to happen. I'm praying for you. I'll never forget. That was like yesterday. I was probably 14. I think about the thousands of dollars that the Warner family spent on pizza every Friday night for our little youth group when we would go to youth and then we would go to their house after for kind of an after party. They, they loved it. They weren't just buying pizza and shelling out money for food. They took me on vacation, their family vacation. They came to my high school graduation. Till his dying day, I spoke at Ed Werner's funeral a few years ago. Till his dying day, every time I saw Ed Werner, he said, I love you. This week, I, I posted just a, an update that we've kind of been working on this book, David Platt and Jim Shaddix, we've been working on a commentary for Psalms. I posted that, my wife posted that. Who shows up in the thread? Nancy Werner, 350 miles away and 30 years after, and she's still saying, I see you. Be encouraged, right? It's the church. Josh Bordas is a member of of Brook Hills, he, he drives up to Louisville because he's got business things that he does there. What else does he do while he's in Louisville? He takes my sons out for lunch. Dave Halpern's done the same thing. There's no obligation to do that. He could do his business and then go play golf. Instead, he does his business and he takes my boy out for chicken. Who does that? I want to say to him, you're not a small group leader anymore. Like You, you, you can actually punch out. Right? You did that while you were here. You're, you're free now. Right? He goes up there voluntarily and pours encouragement into my sons. Who does that? Answer, family does that. Our family needs this family. Our kids need spiritual aunts and uncles in every season and station in life, spiritual grandparents who will nurture them in the faith and help them grow in Jesus. Next, we engage God's mission as a community of faith. We engage God's mission as a community of faith. I'm struck by this quote. If we are raising our kids to worship the trinity of me, myself, and I, their eyes will never see beyond themselves to the world's needs. God has given us a mission. When our oldest son went on his very first Brook Hills short-term trip, I went with him. And we were together, and I saw their group go out. All these, all these people who were on that trip are now 20 and 21 years old. Preston was there, a number of people who are in college now, were there. And they went out and they shared the gospel and they came back and they were so pumped. <laughs> they were so happy. And they got together, they circled up, they threw their hands on each other's shoulders and they started to pray. 
And I saw them over there, and I ran in their direction. You're like, oh, you, you were joining in prayer? No, I was going to take a picture. I, I joined in prayer after, but I took a picture first, right? And I'm not apologizing. I'd take it again. I, so I, I held that thing up, and I snapped a picture looking down, and I look at that thing all the time. And when I look at it, I think, can that be like the whole church? Could that be a metaphor of what happens in the local church? All of us, hands on shoulders, all in for the glory of Jesus in this city and around the world. We've got a mission. Your Christian family has a mission, spreading the gospel of Jesus in this community and to the ends of the earth. It's too big for our family of five. So what does God do? He puts our little family in a bigger family, and then he says, now try it together. That's New Testament Christianity. So what do we do? Brook Hills, just very briefly, five things. I'm almost just going to list them. And I'm going to work in reverse order where we were just a moment ago. Number one, become and lead your kids to become church members. So in other words, cultivate a high view of local church ministry and mission. Pray. When your family prays together, pray for members of this church. Pray for people in your small group. Pray for the elders and the pastors. Pray for the staff. Pray for Miss Phyllis. Right? Pray for your faith trainer. Let's just fill our homes with household names. These are your spiritual uncles and aunts. These are the people who are making us strong. Two, lean into small group community. So make church relational. Get involved in real relationships. Be a person who's looked for. Get involved in relationships. Number three, start family worship. What do I do? Read something from Scripture. It can be very brief. It can be the shortest psalm you find. It can be a little bitty parable from Jesus. And then pray. And then call it a night. And there are resources designed to help in a number of ways. Number four, parents, be chief repenters. Maybe this is where grace needs to begin. This is maybe where the turn in your redemptive story in your home. If your home hasn't been right, be the one tonight to step out. Don't even let this be the night where you address their stuff. It's your turn and only your turn. You come and you confess and humble yourself and show them what it looks like when the gospel gets inside. And number five, pray and don't give up. Fam family's hard. There are setbacks in family. There are, we feel like failures in family, right? So my wife has, um, has given me a gift um, a very practical gift. Right above the water dispenser on our refrigerator is a printed verse of Scripture, and it's Galatians 6, 9. And I see it every day when I fill up my water, time after time, and I need to see it every day. And here's what it says. These will be the last words for us. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up.